This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Hello, my name is Des Holmes. I'm the Director of Research and Practice, and I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Todd, Kyla Kirkpatrick and Alumide Adisa today. We're going to be discussing um, the nature of the evidence base, particularly the evidence base around domestic violence and abuse, the perpetration of that abuse and the interface with children's social care. So let me start by introducing colleagues. I'm Jo Todd. I'm the Chief Exec at Respect. Uh, we have a focus on domestic abuse perpetrators, on male victims and on young people who cause harm. I'm Kyla Kirkpatrick. I'm the director for the DRIVE Partnership, which is a partnership between three organisations um, really focusing on responses to perpetrators of domestic abuse and developing those responses. Um, my name is Alumi Day Madisa. I'm a senior research fellow and the head of Centre for Abuse Research at the University of Suffolk. And we basically um, are focused on building um, what works evidence around domestic abuse research and um, projects as well. So we, we really have a, a huge focus on service improvement and actually ensuring that we are um, building an evidence base, bringing in academics, practitioners and policy makers as well. Thank you so much. Great to have you all here. Kyla, I think you were going to start by just briefly describing the DRIVE partnership, the DRIVE intervention, and, and why you're focusing particularly at this stage around children's social care. So the, the DRIVE partnership came together maybe five, six years ago to take a look at the existing responses to perpetrators of, of domestic abuse, really looking at what was a long-standing intractable social issue in terms of domestic abuse and how could some of this be approached differently Social finance is one member organisation and looking at these issues of social justice and particularly building the business case for investment in these areas is, is a specialism that, that they bring and they really triggered this debate and discussion um, and brought in two organisations to provide that expertise in the field. Um, so one being Respect with their um, expertise in responding to perpetrators of domestic abuse and Safe Lives um, with their focus on, on victim survivors. So the three organisations have worked together over the, the course of the last five, six years. The very first um, piece of work was to look at a very particular project. What else could we do and what could we be doing differently to respond to, to perpetrators? And at that time, really focusing on addressing issues around high harm, high risk perpetrators, perpetrators who were otherwise not engaging with services, flying under the radar, not eligible for existing programmes because of complexities around safety, maybe substance misuse, mental health issues. And the partnership built a, a different way of working um, to, to, to work with that very particular cohort. Over the course of the last three years, we have expanded that scope and we're looking much more broadly at um, whole systems around domestic abuse and perpetrators of domestic abuse. So not just focusing on one intervention, there's no magic bullet, there's no one size fits all. What needs to change across the whole system in terms of service delivery, but also commissioning and policy making to really um, shift the dial uh, on, on this issue. Briefly, the focus here on children's social care came initially from our work with high harm, high risk perpetrators, which takes a very multi-agency approach, um, coordinates responses from different services around the case. And we were finding that on individual casework, we were making really significant change when we work closely with probation, police and children's social care, among, amongst others. And we found that th there were really significant changes in how social care worked with our teams in terms of inf information sharing, risk management, planning, when we were working on a case by case basis. And the drive case managers were learning from social care, um, social workers were learning from them and there was fantastic work being done. However, we couldn't shift that into systems change. It was all very focused on individuals, cases, and a particular family at hand. So we really wanted to step into how do we enable this great practice on the ground to meet in the middle with top-down policy 
um, and systems change within children's social care. That's what triggered this piece of work specifically looking at what is happening throughout the system for children's social care in relation to the perpetrator of domestic abuse, not just focusing on mum and the victim survivor. Thank you. And it's been a really fascinating piece of work for us at Research and Practice to, to be a little bit involved in and really chimes with the messages that we hear from children's social care colleagues about that sense of sometimes helplessness. I, I use that word deliberately, a feeling sometimes described of we don't have anything in our toolkit other than traditional child protection approaches, which some would argue um, almost inherently responsibilise uh, the parent being harmed, which disproportionately is the mother uh, you know, not exclusively, but I think we would all recognise it disproportionately. It's mothers who are responsibilised uh, for abuse where children's social care take that approach. So a really interesting bit of work and, and fair to say not an area of work where there was a pre-existing randomised control trial or manualised programme that you could simply roll out, as the saying goes, which brings me to the notion of evidence. Illumide, one of the myths that we that we've sometimes heard in this space is the idea that there's no evidence. And I, I think probably all four of us on this call would disagree with that narrative. I'm interested from your academic perspective, what do you think the the evidence base or the narrative about that evidence base currently tells us about work with people who perpetrate harm? That's a very interesting question, actually. So I think it's to kind of do an overview of or sort of map how evidence is sort of um, developed for um, in, in this particular area for in the UK. Um, I mean, one good place to start is perhaps to look at um, Progemi Rebel. I'm sure Joe can say much more about that project because she's involved with that. But um, I think this is a piece of work, ever, um, research that was done by Professor Nicole Westmoreland and Professor Liz Kelly. Um, it's sort of very, I think around 2010, um, really. So really quite early in terms of the conversations around whether or not we should begin to work with, you know, those who use harmful behaviours. Um, and so it was very, in some ways, it was seen as being a very innovative approach to start trying to sort of change attitudes in terms of how we should be invested in this area of work. And I think one of very interesting um Another interesting piece of work, actually, was uh, looking at this. So Professor Erica Bowen, she obviously did this sort of meta-analysis of all the of studies, I think about 10 US-based studies, um, to just try to understand um, how maybe those type, that type of evidence or that type of practice could be trans, um, translated within the UK setting. And it, actually, she also did find out that there was no published British outcome studies at the time of accredited programmes. So, you know, it was, I think, I suppose that, that sort of sets apart Project Mirable at the time because it was beginning to ask questions around, you know, you know, can we actually begin to capture new ways or new outcomes in terms of what counts as success? So that was a really interesting piece of work. Um, and I know their report in 2015 looked at about 12 respect accredited um, domestic violence perpetrator programs. So I think for me, from, um, I think it's probably still the most comprehensive research on perpetrator programs in the UK to date. Um, having said that, obviously, Enter Drive and some of what Kurt Kyle has been saying and some of the work that they've been doing, you know, the evaluation that they did as well, it's really contributed to that evidence base and that growing evidence base. We are seeing much more a surge in interest in this particular area of work, which is really encouraging. Um, and I think that even because we now see more research around community-based programs, we're beginning to have a greater understanding of different outcomes that may not necessarily be linked to recidivism, but might be linked to outcomes around education, the well-being of the victim and, and um, slash survivor, you know, looking at really bigger, greater outcomes that actually do matter for in terms of not just um, tackling domestic abuse, but also in terms of preventing domestic abuse as well in the future. Um, so anyways, I think that for me, in a nutshell, um, one of the last piece of research I'm going to mention is one that my colleagues did, actually. So Professor Emma Bond in 2016 undertook a systematic review of about 53 perpetrator focus interventions. Um, and they found that actually that um, a lot of the evidence was still quite sparse for the UK, but most of them were obviously based on either the Duluth model or CBT programs as well. So it does raise a lot of questions around actually because of the underpinning of all of these programs, there is room for us to begin to look at contextual understanding and contextual evidence building rather than just focusing only on RCTs, if that makes sense. It absolutely does make sense. And and like you, I was very, very struck by the Mirabel project. It, it seemed to me it was 
possibly the first example of of really offering a new way of assessing impact, moving beyond recidivism and centering victim-survivor voice. Joe, I know that you and Respect were central to that. I'm interested in your reflections. Are you seeing change in the evidence base? Do you do you root that in different approaches to assessing impact? Yeah, there's been huge change, I think, over the last 20 or so years. Um, change to, this, to just the amount of work that's happening and, and the amount of interest in perpetrators but then also to measuring success. And I think we were stuck in the early days in a really kind of what works in terms of police call outs and convictions of perpetrators kind of framework. So a recidivism framework, which wasn't terribly helpful. It's a very blunt instrument if you want to understand um, whether or not an intervention is having a positive impact. So an example of that is if you just see a measure of success being that there are fewer police call outs, it could be that the survivor is too scared to phone the police or that her experience of phoning the police has been negative so she doesn't bother anymore. So it's it's not a good tool for really understanding if it's about perpetrator change or not. So you need a much more detailed piece of of work, um, qualitative as well as quantitative. I think that's really important. I think the research that really matters is the research that listens to survivors in a really detailed way, asks really searching questions of the impact of the intervention or the response generally to him on her, on the children, on her safety but also on her freedom. And I think that's something that, as Illumide was saying, was really pulled out in Mirable for the first time. And Professor Liz Kelly um, and, and Professor Nicole Westmoreland really focused this. The six indicators of success were, were particularly radical, I think, in talking about the expanded space for action for women. So it's a concept that um, I think Liz had been working on already, but in the perpetrator context was really important. So what that means is if he is on a a behaviour change programme, which is what Mirabelle um, were focused on, does that have an impact on, on her independence, her individual agency, her space for action, her space to be a citizen in the world, to make decisions for herself, to be a fully functioning person. Um, And that's really important because it goes so much further than is he still hitting her um, into what women really want, which is their own freedom and agency. So, So I think that set the bar for what all research should focus on now is not just safety, but freedom. And I think that's where I'd like to see the research going. I think it's also really important that as well as listening to survivors, that we listen to practitioners. Now, I would say that because we're a membership organisation and we represent loads of organisations around the country that have been working for decades with perpetrators. And they really know their stuff. They know what works. They also know how diverse um, the cohort of perpetrators are. So they know that, I mean, on behaviour change programmes, the assessment process means that it should only be men who are ready, willing and able to change that are on those programmes. So it is a very specific element of the whole perpetrator cohort. But when working with those perpetrators, there's still a huge amount of diversity within them. They're from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of personality types. Some have experienced trauma. Um, Some are living in environments where violence is very normalised. Some will have experienced it as children. So there's, you know, and and some won't. And so they are working with that diversity. And I really think listening to the voice of those practitioners about how they do it in the room. What is it actually like in a room of perpetrators trying to change their behaviour? How does that actually work is something that we are really keen to keep understanding, to keep understanding. And I I just think it's kind of getting to the nub of what the point of research is. The point of research is several fold, but one of the key things is to influence practice. It's that feedback loop so that what happens 
in these programmes can be evaluated through research. The research will then find things that can then influence how practice develops. And I think if we can utilise or, or kind of make use of research in that way, it's really important. You're making some really important points there about practice informed research. Um, we hear much more about research informed practice, but I think you're really highlighting uh, the need for reflexivity there. And it also strikes me that what you're describing is a congruence between practice values and research methods and impact measures. If our practice values in this space are about disrupting the coercion, the control, the voicelessness, the, the constrictions that victim survivors have faced, we must surely go about evaluating impact in a way which gives them voice, centres their expertise and creates more freedom uh, and offers a different narrative. So reshifting away from that sort of that passivity that can sometimes pervade the narrative. So I think quite an important call to action about congruence. The way we do our practice should mirror the way we do our research. Illuminate. I'm sure you've got lots of reflections to offer on that. Absolutely. I think that was so really very interesting from Jo. Um, I think I think obviously one of the things that piqued my interest was when she talked about diversity um, within the programming and also how we develop perpetrator programs. I mean, there is a lot we can see about that because we know that there is a lot of work to still be done in that area. Because when we talk about diversity, what do we mean? You know, you can obviously talk about diversity because we're, you know, the background of trauma that someone might face. But at the same time, if we're talking about in relation to intersectionality, then we, we know that we still have a lot of room to travel um, in terms of the um, in terms of actually how we design programs. And actually a piece of work that myself, Mina and Catherine, my colleague um, here at the university, we did, we just you know we which was quite supported by Kyla uh, and drive actually was because of that we noticed that you know the conversations around black and um, um, you know anti-racially other racially minoritized communities were just not really happening. You know, we're not really seeing that inclusivity that we wanted to see. We're not really seeing that conversation. You know, I mean, even on ground, um, in one of one or two of the community-based programs that I'm familiar with, you know, they're turning away people that might need um, an interpreter because it just made it very difficult to be delivering group sessions with men when you have to when you have non-native English speakers within within the cohort and that raised question about well where do those men then have where do they go from that point if that makes sense so I think that that you know one of the things around that small piece of research we did was actually we found that there was a need to have culturally sensitive interventions um, to actually ensure that there's adequate funding to specialist organizations and actually the workforce development needs to be looked at as well. Obviously, um, this is things that practitioners did, you know, mention. I think 58% were from uh, were from professionals, um, were responses from professionals and practitioners. So, you know, I agree with Joe that we need to listen to practitioners, but I also, th also think that we should also be mindful that even within that the group of practitioners, we, there is a place for really identifying the gaps and actually ensuring that we are meeting the needs of um, a diverse group of men as well. And that point about diversity, which which comes through again and again and, and beyond this field of research as well, of course, I've heard it argued, I have some sympathy for this, that some of the traditional methods of undertaking research and evaluation, um, traditionally understood to be good quality, research, they can actually obscure diversity. So you can end up with what some research call a meanification that, you know, the numbers of people in this cohort who were from minoritized groups were relatively small. So actually they got kind of smoothed out through the aggregation of data. So research methods that don't center victim survivor voices, indeed the voice of those who perpetrate harm and the practitioners who serve them, can lose some of the richness that's required to have intersectionally responsive um, kind of approaches in our work. Joe, would you like to come in on that point? Well, disaggregation is our friend, isn't it? That's what we need is, is you know, if we've got data, rather than um, meanifying it, to, to use your word, actually doing the opposite, actually drilling down into it, making sure you're capturing enough in the data to start with and then drilling down, because that's what you really want to understand is, is you know, just having a kind of one size fits all broad brush view of the whole cohort of perpetrators is not going to get you very far. You need to understand in the data what the differences 
are and then to try and draw conclusions that are helpful I think so yeah disaggregation is always always helpful I take Illumide's point about where programs are at in the UK um, I think there's a lot of really interesting work happening in the global south looking at different ways of engaging perpetrators that we need to learn from here in the in the west I think that often gets overlooked. So when we look at, at international research, often what comes to the surface is the USA, Australia, Canada, Europe, and often what's obscured because sometimes the work doesn't look, the, the interventions on the ground don't look like what we're doing here. So that, that's not necessarily structured behaviour change work. It's not necessarily criminal justice interventions. It's much more community-based grassroots approaches to engagement, to kind of to shift thinking from the ground up. I think those approaches are really interesting and we need to look much further afield. I know there's interesting work has happened in Nicaragua. I think they've got some really interesting stats after 20 years of, of this kind of very grassroots intervention work that are really interesting around perpetration. Um, and that's just taking a more social change view of the issue rather than an individual change view. So that's something at respect that we're really looking at now is I don't think it's either or. We want to focus on individual change, systems change. So that's the kind of children's social care, policing, probation, health that, you know, that we've, that we've been touching on already. But also, what do we need to do to bring about social change, whether that's across the UK, whether that's in specific communities, whether we're looking particularly at certain ethnic groups, certain, certain groups within a city or a town, you know, geographical, or whether we're looking at religious-based ways of engaging and, and changing, changing thinking, changing um, culture and society. I don't think any of that is simple, but I think, you know, there's work going on in India, in South Africa, and I'm sure there's loads that I don't know about um, that I'd like to find out more about. So I think if we can have that much more kind of... Um, Let's all just kind of stop looking down into our own little frameworks and look up a bit and see what other people are doing that isn't doesn't look like we're doing, but can be, um, yeah, we can learn a lot from. What a great call to action. Of course, we can't drill down and disaggregate without honouring qualitative methods, engaging people's voices. So I think that does have quite important implications for what we consider to be good research in this territory and I could see certainly that trying to understand um, the impact of community-based interventions that necessitates quite a different evaluative approach so all sorts of challenges and complexities there. Kyla come on in. Um, yeah I just wanted to reflect on, on what Jill was saying I think you know I couldn't agree more and it just really struck me your, your, your point about we need to stop looking down and in and look up and I feel that you know, actually, there's so many factors that play into the ability to do that. And I think the looking down and looking in for many years is it needs to be contextualised. So um, responding to perpetrators of abuse for too long has been, you know, a tiny little corner of work, a tiny little corner of policy and commissioning. Um, so very fragmented funding flowing through to service providers for short periods of time and and often um, a battle for resources. I find that context so important in any discussion about what's the evidence base, how deep is it, how rich is it, because it is, it's framed by this context. And the reason that it's just so interesting at the minute is we are at a moment where that context is changing and we are able to zoom out and to look at all of the, a lot of the discussion from Illumide and Joe has been about the, you know, widening the scope of what measures are important to look at, not just criminal justice, but victim survivors based for action. Um, what are the different cohorts, um, profiles of, of perpetrators that need to be considered? We talked about victim survivor um, impact and voice. Equally, we can be looking at children impact and voice. Um, and I, I think that with the with the change in public narrative, particularly, we're at a moment where that we can zoom out and it's zooming out in terms of practice. 
policy commissioning and the framing for research. So I think there is a real opportunity to be to be looking at all of these different layers because they are deep and wide and the sector just has not had the opportunity to have that stretch um, for many years. And hopefully that um, that change is coming. It certainly feels like a bit of a moment in time, both in terms of uh, how people respect, no pun intended, uh, work with those who cause harm, the national policy attention and legislative change, for example, also perhaps an evolution in how we think about evidence. Um, I'm hearing much more kind of discussion around what might work best for whom under which circumstances, which is you know necessarily uh, less shorthand than what works and I think speaks to your point about diversity within diversity and diverse methods and and being more expansive. Is it the case and and Illumide you might um, have a particular view on this, is it the case that some of what needs to change is the way people think about impact that as as, uh, you three colleagues were talking I kept reflecting on notions of power which of course is central to work uh, with people experiencing domestic use but I think is also central to how we think about impact. If a small group of relatively powerful people set the agenda for what effective looks like, what does that then do to the sector's ability to innovate or think expansively or make mistakes? I I, I don't have an answer to that myself, but that's the question that's come up for me as you've been talking. Yeah, that that's you know fantastic question really. I think one of the things I'm just going to say before I answer the question around power because they're sort of linked is actually that one of the things that I find very encouraging and for me is something that I've been you know like obviously I'm focused on is this and like Kyla's talked about it really quite at length is around systems change. I don't know Jules mentioned the need for that as well. Interestingly, looking at things through a systems change lens actually helps us to look up uh, you know rather than looking down particularly for work that when we begin to look at work globally looking at work internationally because really systems change you know kind of when you apply systems thinking to something you're looking at the interconnectedness of things you're looking at the interconnections of actors of resources um, of, of communities you know all of that stuff really lends itself nicely to sometimes the maybe the unstructured and I put that in quote unquote way that we see how the work um, working with perpetrators might manifest or actually has been done in other settings which does not necessarily mean that it's not good knowledge you know I think it's just really the way we look you know if we if we kind of are open-minded about um you know the 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 different types of knowledge as valid not just the one where as I say RCT or is it from coming from Europe is it coming from US is it coming from Sweden I think if we're much more open-minded we might just be able to draw really good insights um, around really what works and really expanding the evidence base really quickly because then what that means is that we can draw on lessons from different settings both and vice versa as well. And the last thing I'm going to say about power is that, I mean, we could literally unpack this for the old day because I feel like there's a lot to be said around who's at the table, um, a lot for, in conversations in relation to policy, but also in relation to um, even funding and com- conversations around commissioning. I think that these are things we, we cannot overlook, particularly if we're saying that we want to um, not only create systems change, but we want to kind of answer that question of what works for whom and under what conditions. We are kind of moving towards this more very realist grounding way of developing evidence from bottom up rather than from top down. I think that's really exciting. Um, I also think that we're seeing more um, awareness of the need for co-production in how knowledge is being generated and how training, workforce development conversations, all of that stuff needs to be happening. Um, And I think, I, I mean, it's really interesting because I feel like we're seeing that in the perpetrator sector. I don't know if I should call that perpetrator sector, but we know in the area of work in relation to perpetrators, that actually could be, um, in a way, mirrored in other settings of in, within the, the, the domestic abuse space, actually. And I think it's probably testament to organisations like Drive, like Respect, really understanding the need to really begin to, um, I guess, dismantle maybe uh, or disrupt that way of doing that's always been the norm to kind of trying to open up new spaces of knowledge and new spaces of understanding so you know for me I think that you know that's really refreshing to see. That's really interesting Illumide I think what, what I was saying earlier about the one of the audiences for research being practitioners and that practice loop um, I think another 
audience for researchers, commissioners and policymakers. And it presents a real challenge to us, I think, as as practitioners at heart, I guess. We're, we're kind of, you know, um, we, we're much more interested in what works on the ground in the room. But actually, to move the work forward, we need to make sure that what's being commissioned and how policymakers set the framework is right. And we need research for that. And sometimes, you know, what commissioners really want is a cost benefit analysis, uh, which seems really dry to those of us that like to be in the room, but actually is quite important so that so that there is confidence amongst commissioners. But I think I'll go back to the point of so that they're actually commissioning the right things. And I think the worry as as funding streams um, are created and we've seen, you know, I, I think you you mentioned it, Des, but the reality is we've had no central government funding ever for this work until last year when £10 million pounds um, came out of the Home Office and then this year £25 million pounds came from the Home Office. And if there's anything, you know, if that's sustained, that's a lot of money that needs to be spent well and there's a real risk that it could be spent badly and there's a real risk that if if, if there isn't evidence base that is fueling the way that money is spent um, the people making the decisions about that money won't necessarily know how to make the right decisions so that's another really important facet of research which is not the the sexiest element of of research by a long way but is is really key it helps to underpin i mean the respect standard is um is now um, going into its fourth edition we've got accreditation of perpetrator services we need that evidence base um, but we need commissioners and policymakers to understand why it's important why safety in the work is important what effectiveness looks like how it's different for, for different interventions so a drive intervention that's um, got case management of high risk perpetrators who have already caused high levels of harm are likely to cause further high levels of harm. They're resistant to change. They're bouncing around in and out of the criminal justice system, but without without any um, real grip on stopping them until an intervention like DRIVE comes along. The research that underpins what works with them is going to look very different to the mirable type research around behaviour change with men who recognise they've got a problem, want to change, are kind of invested in that journey. So it's really important that, that we are able to kind of tolerate or, or create the environment for loads of different types of research the kind of big multi-sites are, are really needed it'd be great to have some more rcts I'm doing an ethical rct in this area is a real challenge but it's possible but expensive in brackets always always that but also just drilling down into really niche kind of things to investigate as well it, it can be can be really fruitful so i'd like to see that diversification of of just the scope and the grandeur versus smallness of, of the, the research landscape i suppose thank you and i guess uh, another lens on the systems change needed is exactly this kind of system dynamic where practice and the voices of victim survivors and they are not mutually exclusive sources of knowledge of course where they inform research which in turn informs commissioning and policy which in turn then can fund a, a more generative system so really seeing evidence as part of the system change you're trying to influence kyla would you like to come in there um yeah it's just picking up on several threads of, of of the discussion really and looking at diversification and also valuing different kinds of impacts and the policy landscape but looking at so if we're looking at that um diversifying looking at placing equal value on different types of impact it just brings to my mind the importance of also triangulation and how these different measures interface with each other so domestic abuse is about whole families and often extended families and communities and these issues interface and overlap and we know that um, the, the importance of getting 
the victim survivor view, the children's view, the criminal justice um, impact in terms of recidivism, um, they're all important and, and research needs to take that into account um, and have that triangulation of impact and findings. And it's complicated. And one of the things that's really particularly complicated, I think anyway, but particularly when we're working with high harm, high risk um, cases of domestic abuse, is um, is the trauma that is involved for victim survivors and children. And that's not an easy space to go in and start doing research and collecting evidence. Um, so it's something about the importance of triangulation, but also acknowledging some of the challenges of this work, and they are significant. Um, it's very difficult to do um, um, ethical research in that context of trauma and collecting data in relation to victims, survivors and children. It needs um, time, resources um, and a lot of thinking through. And then I'd, I'd also link that to the the, it's the triangulation of policy thinking, um, which also is linked to the source of funding for research. So Joe touched on the funding that's flowing through the Home Office, which you know is very welcome. But we need more departments involved, invested in the research and the shaping of the research and the outcomes of the research. And it's hugely important for many reasons to being it's a whole family issue. So we need to be looking at um, at the issue from from many angles. And if particularly we're looking at the impact of interventions on children, you know, one source of um, evidence for impact is the children's voice, but also um, impact on, on school attendance, well-being. And, and we know from, you know, case studies and anecdotally that we do see this impact. Gathering that data is incredibly difficult. Having access to that information and data is incredibly difficult. Um, so we might have the Home Office involved and providing a framework and a context for research. But if we don't have the, the Department for Education in the game and backing that up, it's incredibly difficult to set up these um, research projects and have that le the level of information sharing that we need. So that's kind of like traveling right down into some of the really logistical challenges um, of this research and I suppose coming back up to how what's the interface between the these different sources of evidence and impact measures and how do we join them together. And I would observe that some of these dilemmas and challenges that, that you colleagues are, are articulating so well are absolutely replicated in the children's social care space, as luck would yes. have it, given the interface you're interested in. I think children's social care as a sector are similarly facing the issue of, you know, um, what works and what matters and how they overlap but they're not entirely coterminous and how you gather rich evidence from multiple sources in a way that actually accords with your professional values and speaks to the needs of commissions and policymakers. So I, I think it's a shared struggle actually, um, uh, both parts of this system. One of the things that we haven't mentioned is listening to perpetrators and it's a challenge I think but an interesting one and I think it was one of the things that that the researchers on Mirabal concluded was that we actually really need to hear from those who have used harmful behaviours, being controlling uh, in their relationships, um, and hear what is going on, what, what, what is it that fuels that behaviour, what has helped them to change. And, and at the moment, we're not very good at doing that. We've been resistant to doing that, I think. Um, and I think part of that resistance is not wanting to give their voices equal weight with the voices of survivors. And of course, that's right. We're listening to survivors as the the voice of experience who can talk about the impact. But actually, those who cause harm often have insights into what they're doing and why that we need to listen to. So I think as well, you know, I've mentioned listening to practitioners, listening to survivors, I would add in listening to perpetrators. That doesn't mean we listen to them uncritically and we will be expecting, depending on where they are at in, in a process of change, but we will be expecting um, levels of minimisation and justification and blaming and, and those things. But I know the Mirable research has found over time that when there was success in the behaviour change work, that those things diminished and they and that men at the end of 
the programme were able to reflect much more on themselves, the impact of their behaviours, where they were at, what was going to keep them safe going forward. And so I I do think that's something for research to think about, is how do you incorporate the voice of perpetrators um, in a meaningful, respectful way? And, and in a way that's respectful to survivors as well. I think that's a really important observation. And in fact, as you've been talking, I've been quite struck by the the ways in which you've referenced the trauma experienced by many people who perpetrate harm or their own needs in their own rights. And that, uh, I suppose it struck me because that's not always in the conversation. Um, and and uh, Illumide, you might have a particular view on this, but it, it seems to me that Many people enter practice, whether that's children's social care or or working in domestic abuse services, often because of their own personal views, experiences um, and desire for change, often rooted in their lived experience. The same, I think, may be true for uh, research roles in this territory. That sense of personal drive may, for some colleagues, of course, make them not feel very inclined to foreground the voice of those who cause harm. I think that would be an entirely human response. But what perhaps is more relevant is that the social narrative, the public narrative for quite a long time has been there are goodies and baddies. There are goodies and baddies in this uh, scenario and listening to the baddies is a betrayal of victim survivors. So moving beyond that into a a more sophisticated space, I think is very difficult, not only for structural reasons, but also for some quite personal reasons for some people. And I think naming that could be key. Day, any observations on Joe's Joe's call to action there around really hearing the voices and views of those who cause harm and doing so in a way that's respectful to victim survivors? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a very key point that Joe's made, actually, because if we're also going to capture impacts, I mean, surely we should be capturing, you know, the impacts on the service users, who obviously in this case are perpetrators. So we can't actually move away from that. Um, so, but I think one of the things I did want to say, though, and I was thinking it with my hat on as an academic, is that we, it's very important that we work So we've been talking about research a lot. Someone might ask, you know, what do you mean by this research? Who's driving the research? I think it's very important to involve academics. um, And the reason why I say this is because of the ethical aspects of it, which obviously some of the issues that have been raised anyways. Um, And I think that you at least in some ways have some sense of comfort that um, the ethical questions have been sort of at least explored around how do you engage with um, vulnerable groups? How do you engage with survivors? How do you even, as a practitioner who might have experienced domestic abuse yourself, you know, if you're going to then ask someone, um, you know, involve somebody like that within your your participant group, how are you making sure that you're keeping them safe? How are you making sure that, you know, they can actually engage in the best possible way that doesn't re-traumatize or, re- or sort of trigger them? So I think those are really important things why it's important that if we're doing research that we take a very collaborative approach where you bring academics, you bring practitioners and you bring survivors survivors to the table. I mean, that's how we do our research anyways at the university, you know, and I think the number of universities also follow that approach. But I think that is what's looking into when you're when commissioners going back to this commissioning loop <laughs> around research, um, that those questions are being asked about who is doing the research. Because for me, my worry with this sort of surging interest, like I said, is a positive thing to see this plethora of research happening. But at the same time, we need to be raising questions as well about what is the, have we really put an ethical framework in place to really make sure that this research is not going to be causing more harm than, in, you know, than, you know which is the whole idea we don't want it to cause any harm actually not even more harm you know it shouldn't really be harmful to participants at all so I think that's what I would say about um, perhaps one of the observations I had in my mind Um, the other thing as well around listening to perpetrators I think also there's something to be said about um, programs that already by their design incorporate um, support services for um, survivors already. I think that for me personally, just from my own experience of um, evaluating um, the community-based programs, I think that it's really interesting when you have that type of design because what happens is that you kind of speak to the perpetrators, but at the same time, you can also speak to the survivors as well. So by nature of that, you're already kind of speaking to both groups. And so you're not sort of privileging one voice over the other. 
Um, and I think actually a lot of times you f I find that survivors themselves won't actually feed into the research. They want to talk about their experiences. So sometimes I think people think, oh, you know, in what way are you delivering the same service in the same space? And, you know, and all of those questions that tend to happen. But actually, no, you know, I think this is the reason why accreditation is very important and actually ensuring that a lot of programs meet the quality standards that are required. Um, and Joe has not paid me to say this, but, <laughs> but you know, this is where sometimes the respect standards do come in, you know, where at least you, you, you do have some sense that there is a framework within which some of these programs are looking at their quality, the quality of service, but also the safety, you know, of survivors, even as they're delivering the service as well. When you do that, you know that you are likely to get not just only better data, but you're also ensuring that you're already working with this sort of ethical framework that ensures that you are already understanding the place for the service user's voice and the place for the survivor's voice as well, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense and uh, it shouldn't need saying, but it does still need saying that whether in practice or research, we start by aiming to do no harm. I think a really uh, salutary message there. Kyla, then Joe, and then I'm going to move into the final question, colleagues. Um, thanks, Des. I think I'm really just backing up um, what has been said around perpetrator voice, but I, and I just wanted to say I think that there is um, there is an opportunity for collaboration um, between uh, practice and researchers on really looking at the the right methodology. So tapping into a lot of what, of, of what Illumide has been saying about the, the place for perpetrator voice and victim survivor voice. I know that um, within DRIVE, um, we've been thinking a lot about what is the right approach. And I think there's more work to be done with research colleagues around methodologies. And as practitioners and service providers, we could really do with um, that kind of co collaboration to help us think and learn and build up that, um, that evidence base that lit literature base um, to guide methodologies and build up thinking around methodologies for um, gaining perpetrator voice. And I think also just to add, you know, some insights from the University of Bristol's research onto the DRIVE project. So working with high harm, high risk perpetrators and conducting those um, qualitative interviews. So there were some really valuable insights. There more work needs to be done on this, um, but we certainly were really struck by insights into the role of um, mental health, particularly rates of suicide um, and suicide ideation that came to the fore through um, some of that research. And of course, mental health, mental ill health is not an excuse for domestic abuse. It plays into the context and there are important things for us to learn in that interface that was something that came out strongly from perpetrator voice the role and the impact that interventions had on that and similarly the role that children in uh, have to play in the process of change so some particular perpetrator um, response feedback on how reflecting on their own experiences of abuse as a child then as a springboard to explore how their behaviour is impacting on their children um, really was coming through as a, a trigger for engagement. Um, what we need more research in is did that translate significantly into a trigger for long term change? So we're getting these insights and we need more long term research to really see how that can be followed, followed through effectively. That's coming from the perpetrator voice. And what's so important there, Kyla, in what you're sharing is, and you're modelling it very well, I think, this both and mindset, we can both be absolutely clear who responsibility sits with for causing harm and acknowledge those people causing harm might have a multitude of needs, adversities, difficult life experiences, none of which is to excuse, but it can help us understand. And I think that might, you know, that's easy to say. I think it's a very, very difficult path to navigate sometimes when you're in practice and research can unlock some of that for us done well and done with nuance. Jo. Um, I just wanted to um, flag to anyone that isn't really aware of the respect standard that do no harm is our first principle. So um, <laughs> it's right at the top. Um, one of the things I'm interested about, and Illumide was was talking about, it was the ethical framework for research, not just for obviously that our standard is about a, an ethical framework for uh, practice 
and for responses to perpetrators. But for research, the four women's aid federations um, in November last year published their research integrity framework on domestic violence and abuse. And I think that's something for us to look at and to work with them on um, and you know, to think about how might we create something similar around research and perpetrators of domestic abuse. So that's something I'd like to see happen. I think right at the at the end of our conversation, I just want to flag that we framed it very much around men's violence against women. And that's obviously there's loads of reasons for that. It is the majority. We started off talking about children's social care and, and mothers. And so that's the context. But also, I think we're really interested in, in the context in which women use violence um, as, as well. And, and I mean, in it in its broadest form. So women who are the primary coercively controlling perpetrator in a relationship um, and what that looks like and is that different and what and how is it similar and um, there's very little research in that sphere um, and also that impacts of course on, on male victims um, who um, are very invisible in that space. But also we haven't mentioned at all same-sex relationships. And I think, again, it's an area. So there's lots of, I suppose, I mean, I always call it parts of the cohort because I do think of, you know, anyone that's causing harm in their families and uh, in their relationships, um, a part of a cohort and it's happened, you know, they, um, even if it's a, a small kind of segment that we can disaggregate into, it's really important to understand um, I think with same-sex domestic abuse, obviously Catherine Donovan has done some really interesting research, but it feels it's very much in its infancy and something we need to explore um, further. And then I think just in terms of, of, of where the, the kind of under-researched um, elements of the cohort, I think there's lots more to understand about how adults as well as young people who are on the autism spectrum or have learning disabilities or brain injuries, how their use of violence and abuse differs or is similar to uh, what, you know, our kind of more, um, our understanding of perpetrators of violence against women. So, you know, there are some challenges really in the research field for understanding those who don't fit within the main framing of how we view the issue and 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 how we move forward and and create the right research to get to the right answers. Thank you, Joe. That certainly came through when we researched in the literature that, you know, so far as we could say the evidence suggests or the evidence supports, there was always that caveat. But we don't actually know if this remains true for uh, you know people in same-sex relationships using violence or people from my other minoritized groups. And I think it's an enduring challenge. I'd like, if I may, um, to, to finish this by playing back what I think uh, the three of you have made such a strong case for, that given you know, there are numerous challenges associated with continuously improving the evidence base in this territory, the ethical issues, um, the information sharing, some of those practical uh, methodological issues, the complex local systems in which effective practice is happening, um, and then uh, alongside that, the considerable unarguable capacity and resource constraints facing most if not all of the actors in those local systems uh, and the implications that then has for those or particularly thinking smaller community-based organizations what role can they play in generating the evidence when they are um, you know faced with such considerable resource challenges you've highlighted uh, the the tensions um, that can appear where you have you know narrow constructs of what constitutes evidence narrow constructs of impact You've highlighted the policy fragmentation that can exist, multiple responsibilities across different parts of uh, central government, for example, and how that can then play out in terms of fragmented research agendas and indeed fragmented local responses. You've highlighted the need for much more diverse perspectives, uh, hearing from many, many different types of voices around what helps, what matters, and indeed where we're lucky, what works. They are different but connected things. The need to have much more practice-informed evidence, lived experience informing practice and evidence, and then have policy that is informed by the evidence. The need to really avoid narrow, blunt, uh, you know, reductive approaches to 
impact measurement because if we follow that path any further we're not really going to create the kind of um, diverse and nuanced evidence base that all three of you have argued for so well. That nuanced and multi-dimensional approach uh, to building the evidence base, it seems to me requires, and you've said this word many times, a much more collaborative approach. If we're to get away from the binary thinking, we have to engage in critical thinking, and that relies on, I think, a collaborative endeavour. So my question to you for $64 million, if creating better evidence is everybody's responsibility, everybody's business, to, to use a cliche term, what role do you think different parts of the system need to play? I'm thinking, Joe, you might particularly have a view around how practitioners and service providers uh, could play a role here. Kyla, you might have a view on how local systems can play a role. And, and of course, Illumide, come in and, and tell us what you think the research community needs to be doing. How do we achieve this more nuanced, sophisticated, reflective and reflexive evidence base? Who needs to do what? OK, I'll go first. <laughs> So, um, so I think one of the things I wanted to do, I wanted to say actually, just I know you've done a really wonderful summary. Is um, I know when Joe was listing some of the gaps in our knowledge, I think I would also add um, our understanding around older people as well. I think that's something that we also need to be focusing on in terms of you know interventions um, and understanding. Um, when you know what, what the complexities are around that area, I think that's one thing that's not been looked at. So I mean, it obviously goes down to the, diversify, the diversifying of the knowledge base. And obviously, when we begin to talk about intersectionality, it would, it would touch on things around same sex. It would talk about things of religion, you know, faith, and all that stuff. And so that's very important. So I think leading nicely into what I want to see, I actually think that there's a role for the research community. Um, to, um, like I said, be more collaborative with the practice um, side of things. I think there's already some really good practice already happening, good partnership work already happening with what some of what Drive is doing, some of what Respect are doing. Um, I think there's a lot of collaborations with universities already happening anyways. But I think that one of the things I probably want us to do is even expand our understanding of who researchers are. So as much as we know we have academic researchers like myself, we should also embrace community researchers. So those that might actually have a sort of hybrid or you might call them pracademic, you know, where they kind of straddle. <laughs> I don't know if that's, I've just made up the words now. Is that everyone? <laughs> right? So like, you know, those are coming from some of that practice and academic background. Um, and I think that it's very important to 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 value that knowledge as well, you know, um, and, and especially for, for those that might even be survivors themselves and then gone into academia as well. And, and you know, like, I think understanding that every, you, you know, the journey and the stories and the experiences that people bring to the table, whether lived experiences, are so valuable and so vital to this conversation. Um, and also, I think, going back to what Joe was saying about also being open to even bringing perpetrators or those that have been onto the program to the table, especially after they've been after they've actually been on the program. Um, I think, we, you know, what, there was a conference. I, did, I think it probably got shelved because of the pandemic. But I remember that they were, they were, they were going to invite uh, one of the men that had been on the program. <laughs> on, I'm not going to mention the name of the conference. And I think there was a lot of controversy because they're like, oh, is this person going to come and speak to, you know, a group of, you know, of conference att attendees about their behavior and all of that stuff. But I think we need to get to that place of being open to listening to the men that have been on the perpetrator programs themselves to understand more not only about their motivation for change but also understanding how they wanted they want to again create their journey post the program so you know we're seeing where you know i mean from some of the men i've spoken to we're seeing where they tell me oh i want to give back now i want to really go into the community and talk to more men to to understand the impact of domestic abuse and to actually understand how you can change your behavior and, and things like that so i think that we need to begin to change our perspective about how we see um perpetrators in this binary lens of, you know, they've, you know, as if they cannot ever be rehabilitated. I think we need to try and change that. You know, I think that for those that are well motivated to want to change, whether for the reasons related to their, you know, they want to be better dads or they want to be, you know, they just want to really be better and, you know, in terms of their relationships, we need to give them the opportunity to change as well. So I think it's been open about that as well. Um, so I think the research community does have a role to play in terms of helping to develop the evidence base further. I mean, I'm personally invested in that to kind of ensure that we can actually begin to look at 
um, the area of work is not something that, as you're going back to what you said at, at the beginning, there's that people say, oh, there's no evidence, but actually we know that there is growing evidence. So we need to just portray that evidence more. We need to share that evidence more. We need to be talking about it and we need to be sh- ensuring that we're bringing the right people to the table. So academics, practitioners, survivors from different backgrounds. I think valuing different voices is very important. Thank you. A strong call there for greater interdisciplinarity. Uh, but also greater inclusivity. And I, I could see that um, that requires not just a change from the research community, but some pretty significant uh, change to the social discourse on this stuff. None of it's easy, as you were saying, Joe. So what, what actions or responsibilities would you like to see being taken by colleagues in practice, colleagues delivering services? I, I mean, I'm old enough um, to say without, uh, <laughs> without embarrassment, I used to think when I worked in a real job, that evaluation was a thing that they did to me, constantly trying to prove that we were good enough to someone over there who was a miles, miles and miles away from what really mattered. That was certainly one of the prejudices I held when I delivered services. Have things changed? What role could colleagues doing the work play in a better evidence base? Um, I, yeah, I, I, I have some thoughts on that. Certainly, there are things that that we can do. Um, so one is I think we can be more open to more nuanced discussions around the evidence base based on the conversation that we've had today. We know that there is evidence there um, and there are different types of evidence there. But I think we can also be open and hold our hands up to the fact that it's the beginning of a picture and there's a lot more to do. Um, and I think at times the conversation um, could be more nuanced in recognising um where current approaches to to research and and research that's very connected to to practice and delivery um, can open up into a broader space. Um, And I suppose, to put it bluntly, maybe not in a particularly helpful way, but to get past conversations that are about, there's no evidence, yes, there is, there's no evidence, yes, there is. There's a a huge bridge um, between those two viewpoints. And I think as a sector, we can do it better we can have those conversations and I certainly take that on um, myself to 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 really encourage that kind of conversation. We don't need to be defensive about this. Um, the other area that I would really like to um, play my part um, in improving within the sector is how we collaborate and manage our data. There's an absolute wealth of information and data um, across uh, services, um, perpetrator services. Um, And I think we can do a lot more within the sector to to harness that um, and to really lift it up as a collective set of data that gives inroads into, you know, different kinds of analysis um, and and research and evaluation. But there's some practical and logistical things that we need to put in place across, you know, a high number of services to really start to make better use of the data that we have. So I think they would be the two things that I would say from from a, a provider and a service provider perspective that, that we could do better. I do think there are things that commissioners can do better too, but I'll leave that to Jill. I'm sure she's got thoughts on that. So I was very struck with Illumide's impractidemic. Um, yeah. And I I think that's, you know, that a great, great to invent a word and, and also a concept. I'm going to do my own pun here. We need to drive, I think, a proactive strategic approach to research, and that needs to be a collaborative approach. So what I mean is that those from from academia, from practice, from policy, from commissioning need to work together to set a strategic framework for what research is needed. So we get away from this ad hoc piecemeal um, approach and really think about what would help to build an evidence base that's of value. And and that's not just big pieces of research, it's valuing all different types. I think Kyla's right, we need better data to really understand, Um, we need more qualitative to to really get into the into the detail and the nuance of not just what works but how it works and I think that that's a really important distinction that we're getting you know I think I I hope we're past the does it work and and people are beginning to ask how does it work and for whom and in what ways so that's I'd like to see that kind of nuance 
so there is something you know kind of aspirational about us all working together and um you know trying to to, to kind of create that atmosphere where we can we can develop that evidence base um, I think can I um if I could if I could just jump in um so it's one of the things that um I didn't say when I was you know holding hands up to what to what we can, we can do ourselves I'd like to see commissioners see themselves as part of the solution so yes there are I can see that for them there are probably gaps in the coherence of the information that they have to inform their use of public money um, but it's about shifting that thinking to understand the context that we've been talking about today. You know, why why are we in the position that we're in um, and to be part of addressing that by commissioning good evaluation, research and services, seeing themselves as part of filling in those gaps that they have um, rather than passively expecting an under-resourced sector to <laughs> miraculously be able to provide them all of a sudden and I think that's particularly when it comes to really wanting to build up an evidence base over a longer period of time and looking at you know what, what's happening now but what does that look in two three five years time. Um, this is very important because I think what you've just said about commissioning and just looking at some of my, you know, the experiences um, of how some of this work has been commissioned at the community level. Um, I think that commissioners do have a place, a role to play around the transparency of this, of how money has been spent for perpetrator programs. I mean, one of the questions around social value, I know Joe mentioned cost benefit analysis and all of the stuff. I really think that questions around even the social value of those programs need to be answered and let that evidence inform the direction of, um, you know, I think that actually also nicely ties into what Joe was saying about the strategic approach, like, you know, how, you know, it needs to it needs to be very place based in some ways, but also we need to be aware that there's also work that would be happening at the national level. So I'm bringing those together. And I think it still goes back to this thing around local systems change, national systems change and joining those dots. Thank you, colleagues. You've made a really, I think, powerful and compelling case for a much more coherent, collective and collaborative approach where no party gets to see themselves as passive in the face of the evidence base and everybody has a role to play in generating a more useful, more nuanced, more sophisticated evidence base. You've clearly demonstrated the role that all of us and our different guises can play to contributing to, to that future. Thanks again, colleagues. For listening to this research in practice podcast we hope you've enjoyed it why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on twitter tweet us at research ip